Here are some extras that didn't make the final cut in episode 513 about the mass transit decoy squad of the 1970s. Please have a listen to that full-length episode first, otherwise the following may not make much sense. And if for some super weird reason this is the first ever episode you're listening to, I'm Tommy Henry, the creator and host of the Chicago History Podcast. Enjoy. In October of 1962, the Chicago Tribune ran a story in their Sunday magazine section titled Death Rides a Flash of Steel, which underneath read, When a knot of fear tightens in a cop's stomach, it's not because he doesn't know what to expect, it's because he does. In the magazine story, it discussed how the city was under the threat of a wave of vicious strong-arm taxi robberies, One decoy, Sergeant Lenny Knoll, volunteered to drive a cab on the city streets and ended up getting in two fights for his life. In one of those fights, he shot and killed his attacker. After that incident, the number of taxi robberies decreased. In one picture in the article, Sergeant Alvin Scholl staggers up a stairwell pretending to be drunk. Sergeant Dick McCurry, these are all very cool cop names, uh, who helped develop the early 1960s decoy squad with Scholl, was quoted as saying, There's a lot of ham in all of them. There's also a lot of guts. The undercover cops were so good at playing seedy characters, they were often picked up by other cops. Quote, It happens all the time, said one undercover cop, and although it can be annoying, it's always comforting to know we haven't lost our touch. Back in early 1963, there was a documentary shown on WGN-TV Channel 9 called Tough Guys, tough, of course, spelled T-U-F, billed as a, quote, factual drama about Chicago Police Department's tactical undercover function. End quote. To make it even more Chicago, it was sponsored by Sears, Roebuck, and Company, the department store chain founded here in Chicago. I would love to see this documentary, but have been unable to track it down. So if any of you helpful listeners have it or have a lead on it, please reach out to me. If you listen to the full episode, you heard me talk about the stabbing murder of 86-year-old Dr. Julia Spiro in one of Chicago's subways. It would later be revealed that one day after Dr. Spiro's assault, his assailant, 17-year-old Lester Davenport, was burglarizing the apartment of 41-year-old Nellie Salisbury, a mother of six, in the 9600 block of South Halsted, when Salisbury returned home. Startling her intruder, Mrs. Salisbury was stabbed in the chest. Neighbors who heard the woman's screams called police, who found Lester Davenport in an alley at 97th and Halsted. In his possession was a 7-inch pocket knife. Salisbury was taken to Little Company of Mary Hospital, where she identified Lester Davenport as her attacker. Davenport, a parolee from the suburban St. Charles Training School for Boys, recanted his confession, claiming he was under the influence of drugs and didn't know what he was doing. A little more than a year after the slaying of Dr. Julia Spiro and the stabbing of Nellie Salisbury, Lester Davenport was sentenced to serve from 15 to 30 years in prison for the slaying of Spiro. 
Davenport was also sentenced to 10 to 14 years for the attempted murder, aggravated battery, and attempt in robbery of Mrs. Salisbury. I received two messages from relatives of Dr. Spiro about the podcast episode, and they both agreed to let me include them here. This is Larry Serlin. I'm leaving this message regarding episode 513 concerning the Chicago Mass Transit decoy squad. My great uncle was Julius Spiro. I didn't know until listening to this episode that his death had resulted in the formation of a special unit on the uh, CTA. I'm glad that there was a positive consequence to this tragic incident. My name is Lori Levin. Thank you for the podcast regarding the murder of my great uncle, Julius Spiro. This had a big impact on our family. I was a child who had just seen him the day before. The offender, although he pled guilty at the preliminary hearing, was released in a little over 10 years, somewhere between 10 and 15 years. Thank you again, and keep doing what you're doing. Bye-bye. Thanks to you both for reaching out to me. Your great uncle sounds like he was an amazing man who deserved a better ending to his life. And messages like this make my efforts in creating this podcast even more worthwhile. While the stabbing death of Dr. Spiro was the incident that made the city and the police department take action to counter the crime on the CTA with the introduction of the decoy squad, city officials were certainly aware of the problem long before then. In addition to outside criminals causing trouble on the public transit system, there were also criminals on the inside. On June 3, 1971, the Chicago Tribune ran a front-page story about several Chicago Transit Authority employees who had been linked to a bandit ring called the Sky Riders. According to the Chicago police and CTA officials, this gang was suspected of committing hundreds of robberies, during the previous year on L trains and platforms, the story claimed seven suspected members of the gang had already been arrested, with 19 more being sought. One gang member turned informant detailed the gang's operations, which normally took place between 10.30 p.m. and 4 a.m. Both CTA conductors and ticket agents would serve as lookouts for robbers, warning them if police were in the area or riding trains. Some gang members were so well-known to CTA employees that they wouldn't have to pay to ride the L, and often the robbers' best customers for goods stolen aboard the L trains were the CTA employees themselves. In the first four months of 1970, there were 490 crimes on the CTA. The same period one year later reflected 900 crimes. See... They needed Jimmy Davern and the decoy squad much earlier than anyone let on. Virginia Cronk, one of the few female officers on the decoy squad, showed up in the news a few more times in her career. In one instance, 43-year-old William Riley boarded an L train smoking a cigarette in violation of the CTA's no-smoking rule. Officer Cronk, in plain clothes, asked Riley to put out the cigarette. Instead, Riley blew smoke in Cronk's face. Officer Cronk arrested Riley, and when he was searched, police found a carton of steaks 
worth about $600, which Riley had stolen from a restaurant where he worked. In another story, Virginia Crock and fellow police officer Nancy Stakilo posed as clients to bust a faith healer. Police were alerted by two 22-year-old women who claimed 54-year-old Christos Euthymou took liberties with them. Kronk and Stakilo posed as clients visiting the faith healer, I'm using finger quotes here, at his office home on West Leland Avenue in Lincoln Square. Each woman paid $20 for a one-hour session. It didn't take long before Ethermu began fondling and kissing the undercover cops as part of what he called, quote, laying on of the hands, end quote, during the ritual. Ethermu was arrested and transported to the Belmont area lockup. December 10, 1971, decoy squad member James Humphrey was on the L station at North and Clybourne, lying on the platform, pretending to be passed out. Michael Gully, 23, of the 1100 block of South Kildare, approached Humphrey and kicked him in the leg. Seeing no response, Gully removed Humphrey's watch and some money. Gully began to walk away, then turned and kicked Humphrey in the face with such force, quote, if his head were a football, it would have carried 60 yards. Gully then kicked Patrolman Humphrey in the stomach, and while Humphrey was doubled over screaming for backup, Gully stomped on his right hand with enough force as to break it. Kenneth McCann, a decoy unit sergeant, arrested Gully with the help of two other unit members, using force when Gully resisted arrest. Both decoy squad member James Humphrey and offender Gully were admitted to Henrotten Hospital, long gone, where both were listed in fair condition. Gully was charged with assault, strong-arm robbery, and resisting arrest. I was thrilled to learn Paul Siegfried, one of the remaining decoy squad members, long retired and living in Wisconsin, heard the podcast episode about himself and his old crew. I found another mention of Siggy as he was known. One night not far from the Rush Street nightclub district, Paul Siegfried was slumped on the stairs of a subway station, reeking of booze. According to the newspaper article, quote, Siegfried is an inventive man who has been known to borrow his six-year-old son's beanie, a tasseled one, to impersonate a football fan drowning his sorrows, end quote. Anyone who has supported the Chicago Bears over the years knows that isn't much of a stretch. When it came time to prosecute offenders, Patrolman Jimmy Davern said this, quote, Whenever I get robbed, Davern said, we recover the property, our evidence, from the assailant no more than 10 or 15 feet away from me. If there was ever anything such as an airtight case, this is it, end quote. In addition to acting as decoys, the Mass Transit Special Operations Unit had a keen eye for spotting potential robbers, following their intended victims from the train, often making an arrest before a civilian got hurt. Unfortunately, many of those arrests of the early 1970s did not lead to convictions because the victims were not willing to take the time to testify against their muggers. According to James Davern, quote, Apathy of the victims is the biggest problem we have, end quote. 
I talked a lot in the main episode about Chicago cop Jimmy Davern, so instrumental in the effectiveness of the Mass Transit Special Operations Unit, a.k.a. the decoy squad. You'd think that guys willing to take risks like these were likely single and didn't have anyone waiting at home for them. On the contrary, Jimmy Davern was married, raising three sons and two daughters while he was risking his neck to keep Chicago safe. When Davern's wife's sister died, the couple even took in the sister's two young daughters. When I asked his son Steve if it was strange to have his dad come home all banged up, he said, quote, We knew what he did for a job. It seemed normal to us. Jimmy Davern passed away in 2003 at the age of 71. In his obituary, it read, in part, quote, Cherished friend and pal to many, he will be greatly missed, end quote. Jimmy Davern and the rest of the decoy squad certainly made their families and Chicago proud. There you go, some extras for all of you who enjoyed the full-length episode. I hope you enjoyed these added bits. Thanks for listening.